Let's look at God's word one last time as we turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Unless you think we're starting a new study, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament was one book. And so we're actually just halfway through. We're just continuing what we have, have been looking at in Ezra. Let us give attention to God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Achilah. Uh, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the twentieth uh, year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that uh, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of, the heaven, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. You may be seated. Let us not forget that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so we come this morning with a great privilege to hear God's word preached. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you truly for the great privilege. But Lord, you know we may have had a very busy week. We may be physically exhausted and tired. Lord, we do know from your word that Satan is here. Satan is here to steal your word from your people that they would not hear. He does not want it to bear fruit, but we would pray, Lord, that you would hinder him. Lord, that you would cause the root of your word to take root deeply in the hearts of your people, to grow, to be expressed in faith in our lives. Oh, Lord, we pray that the hardest of hearts, the hardest of soils that is here today, would be softened by your spirit to receive the word and, and come to faith in you. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, John Newton, a great Christian, he said this. He said, I find in my own case 
an unaccountable backwardness to pray. Now, what he's basically saying in today's language is, I find prayer very hard. That's what he's saying. He said, I can read, I can write, I can converse with a ready will, but secret prayer? Secret prayer is far more spiritual than any of these. Wow, we as Presbyterians can relate to that, can we not? Don't we like to, to read and to write and converse and, and all these? We just love to have discussions and stuff. The secret prayer is far more spiritual than any of these. He goes on and he says, And the more spiritual a duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to start or to stray away. The more my carnal heart, the more spiritual a duty is, my carnal heart is apt to start or to stray away from it. Can you relate to that? Now you know why you struggle to pray, right? It's because oftentimes it's uh, it's our carnal hearts. But just because prayer is hard doesn't mean that we do not pursue it, we do not practice it, and we do not persevere in it. Now, that would make a great sermon outline, but that's not my sermon outline, okay, even though it's three Ps. All right? We do need to persevere. We need to never give up. And if you struggle to pray, then let me encourage you, pray and say, Lord, help me to pray because I struggle to do so. Well, this morning we're, we're going to look at a prayer that Nehemiah gives. It's, a, it's probably uh, uh, the best Old Testament example of intercessory prayer. I think it's the longest Old Testament intercessory prayer that we see. And kids, what I mean by intercessory prayer is lifting up the needs and the concerns of others to God, just praying for other people. That's what I mean by intercessory prayer. So whenever I say that word, you can think about just praying for other people. And so this morning, I want us to look at this topic of intercessory prayer, and I want us to consider a number of things. And this outline's not going to be as easy as the three Ps, but that's okay. Hang with me. I'll repeat it now, and then I'll repeat it on each point, okay? First of all, we want to look, we want to see that uh, intercessory prayer includes looking outward in compassion. Looking outward in compassion in verses 1 through 3. And then second of all, looking upward in dependence to God in verses 4 through 6. Looking upward in dependence upon God. And then third, looking inward with penitence and repentance. Looking inward with penitence and repentance in verses 6 and 7. And then finally, and these, these are really sort of two points, but I put them together because they really are, they relate to one another. And that is looking backward with gratitude and forward with confidence. Looking backward with gratitude and forward with confidence, verses 8 through 11. So we'll look at each one of those, and I'll repeat those, so you can write those down if you would like. But just so you know where we're at, sort of throughout the book of, of Ezra, so far we've sort of let you know the timeline. You know that the exiles returned to Jerusalem the first time, the first set of exiles, and they were there 18 years before the temple was built. And then after the temple was built till like the end of Ezra was like 80 years, roughly. And then between that last chapter in Ezra and the first chapter in Nehemiah was like 12 years. So that's, that's the time frame that, that we have just to sort of keep you on track. Uh, but let us look at this idea of intercessory prayer in Nehemiah as he prays for God's people. The first thing we see is that he looks outward in compassion in verses 1 through 3. Nehemiah is in the city of uh, Susa in Persia, 
and Hananiah and other brothers from Jerusalem and commentators debate whether these are actual blood brothers or Jewish brothers. I don't think it really matters, but these men come from Judah. And, and we read in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 2, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah heard of Jerusalem's most recent troubles. You see, Nehemiah was a, a servant of the king. Uh, he was, so he, you know, most likely hanging around the court like that, he would have heard that the Jews had attempted to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And, uh, but there were local Persian officials in, around Jerusalem that reported that to King Artaxerxes and said, King, please tell these people to stop. And I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. If you have a people who are under your rule and all of a sudden you see them rebuilding their temple and then now they're going to build up their walls, you can sort of think these people will most likely be a rebellious people and, and I don't want that. So Artaxerxes said, yes, tell them to stop building the wall. And so they did. Now, lest you think I'm making all of that up, I'm getting all of that from Ezra chapter 4 verses 6 through 23. If you remember when I preached on the opposition that Israel faced and how I said, uh, as Ezra is giving this account, he actually is looking a hundred, almost 100 years, you know, 80 years into the future to tell us how there was opposition under Artaxerxes. And now is that time. You know, now is that time. And Nehemiah would have known about this. And he would have also known about Ezra because Ezra was a contemporary of his. And he would have known how Ezra was taking another set of exiles back to Jerusalem, uh, but this time to establish a covenant community around the Word of God. Uh, so when these travelers came from Judah, we can understand why Nehemiah inquired about them, about the exiles in the state of Jerusalem. But what I want you to notice from the text is that uh, sort of who Nehemiah is and why this is sort of unusual that he would worry himself about these exiles. You see, Nehemiah was a man, uh, he was a prestigious man. And this is spoiler alert, by the way. Okay, so just tell you, it's a spoiler alert. I'm gonna give you the ending of the story. He was a cupbearer to the king. If you notice, it doesn't tell us that till the very last verse. And there's a reason why Nehemiah does that. But uh, I went ahead and told you anyway, sorry. But uh, kids, just so you know who a cupbearer is, Whenever you're a king, especially in the ancient times, they were always sort of fearful that someone may try to poison them or kill them in some way. And poison would be the trickiest, you know, sort of um, behind the scenes way of getting rid of a king. So what a king would have would be a cupbearer. And whenever the king would give, be given a cup of wine, you know, before the king drank it, he'd give it to his cupbearer and his cupbearer would taste it. And then the king would look at him, and if he didn't drop over dead, then he would take the cup and he would drink it. Okay, so he was sort of, you know, uh, the guy that would sort of uh, test everything for the king to make sure that it was okay to drink. Now, that's very unusual for a Jew to be a cupbearer. Um, because, you know, these are people who have been taken into captivity. So, in one sense, the Jews were slaves. They were captives. But the king for whatever reason, trusted Nehemiah with his life. And so Nehemiah wasn't just a, a putz over here in the corner. He was a man who traveled in the realm of the, the courts of Persia 
the most powerful nation on the earth and and he you know he hung out with the upper crust of society and stuff and yet he concerned himself for these Jews and for the city of God as a matter of fact it's it's Nehemiah who takes the initiative to find out about him it's not like these men came back and said hey Nehemiah guess what's going on in Jerusalem he actually asked them hey what's going on so they had been on Nehemiah's mind I don't think that's too much of a stretch uh, to, to say that but Nehemiah had grown up in Babylon but he had never been to Jerusalem but his heart was burdened for the work of the Lord and brothers and sisters Christians ought to reflect that the burden of Nehemiah's heart and the burden of Nehemiah's heart I'm, I'm going to sum it up this way is to say that nothing is more important than the state of the kingdom of God there's nothing that's more important than the state of the kingdom of God. In other words, that what our concern ought to be first and foremost in our lives is how does this reflect upon God? Our, um, you know, but if we're very honest with ourselves, oftentimes we think about things from our perspective, how they affect us. You know, whether that's some trial that we're going through some difficulty, some decision that we have to make. You know, even when we, if you're, if you're concerned about the state of our country, you know, you may be so because you may be older and you may think, well, you know, our country didn't used to be like this and we're sort of becoming a, a, just a, a shadow of what we used to be. Or maybe you're younger and you're concerned about the welfare of your children and growing up in this country. And, and you know, it's always easy to think of things from our own perspective. But we ought to be thinking about these things from the perspective of the kingdom of God. Um, I think a great example of this is William Carey, you know, the so-called the so-called father of modern missions. And I don't know if, how much you know about William Carey, and I'm no expert, but the little things I've read, he read the stories of Captain Cook's travels, and that sort of opened his eyes to see that there were different lands and there were different peoples than just his own people. And then he was familiar with David Brainerd and John Elliott, who were missionaries to the Native Americans in the 17th and 18th centuries, which gave him some practical examples of cross-cultural uh, communication and witnessing and stuff. And so as a young man, he worked both as a cobbler and as a teacher. And above his workbench, he actually drew a map of the world. And he put all the countries and he put all the populations of the countries and stuff like that. And then he began to pray for the people of the world. And he prayed that God would make it possible for him to do something about the fate of those who lived in spiritual darkness. And of course, you know from the end of the story that, that he did. But you know, every Christian should have that spirit of missionary inquiry. Okay, I'm not saying that every Christian ought to be a missionary, that we ought to send everybody out to go to other nations. But there is a sense, brothers and sisters, in which... You know, as we come to faith in Christ, and we are no longer our own, we are Christ, right? And that His agenda, His will is what's most important, that it ought to be our desire to tell other people about Jesus Christ. It ought to bother us that there are people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, even those of us who are Presbyterian, who are Reformed, those of us who believe in predestination and all those things, even more so we ought to be concerned about these things. And uh, 
And every Christian should feel the weight that nothing is more important than the state of the kingdom of God. And Paul expresses this very well uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 15, where he talks about you know, Christ giving himself on the cross and those who trust him for forgiveness and those who have received a new life. Paul says no long, they no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, a, a, a person given to intercessory prayer looks at the true condition of the world around them, but they do so from God's perspective. He looks outward in compassion to the welfare of God's kingdom, being consumed that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's what we see from Nehemiah, that sense of outward concern about what is happening to the people of God in the city of God. The second thing we see is once... Nehemiah sees this need, then he, he immediately looks upward in dependence upon God. He looks upward in dependence upon God, verses 4 through 6. Um, we see that Nehemiah is very committed to prayer. Actually, he's more than committed to prayer. He's committed to being with his father. Uh, he, Nehemiah's immediate reaction to the news of his people's trouble was to go into the presence of God in prayer. Now, throughout the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see that he's a gifted leader. I mean, there's been tons of leadership material written on the book of Nehemiah. Some of it, I think, is a little bogus. But, you know, um, but he was very much, there's no question, he was a gifted leader. But he was also, he's also portrayed in the book of Nehemiah as a man of prayer. And I'm not 100% certain, but I think there's nine recorded prayers of Nehemiah. But this is the first and, and we read it, the beginning of it, in verse 4. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I hope you see, it's just struck me, as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, how many times it talks about whenever there was a great need, whenever there was a great anguish over the fact that, that there was something wrong with God's people, something wrong in God's kingdom, that, that the man of God wept but he also fasted and he prayed and i just wonder if we haven't lost something today i mean it's neat that that we can fast and we can pray over the lord's direction about a building but how much more should we be maybe weeping and fasting and praying for the lost or for other things in our lives as well anyway so nehemiah's first instinct nonetheless is to pray. You know, for, for many Christians, prayer becomes sort of the last resort. You know, something comes into your life, what's the first thing you do? Well, let me see how I can fix this. And so then you work and you try and you labor and you toil for a little while. And then if that doesn't work, then you're like, oh yeah, Lord, I need to pray to you. And then we go to the, the Lord in prayer. But that's not how Nehemiah thought of prayer. It was not the last resort. It was the first thing that he did. And, and Nehemiah was committed to prayer far beyond just conventional religious exercise. It's not just, he didn't just say, well, I need to pray because, you know, that's what Christians do. But prayer was a vital daily experience for Nehemiah. It's something he did on a regular basis. Nothing mattered more to Nehemiah than entering the presence of the Lord. Now, now notice that Nehemiah, as he does actually begin his prayer to the Lord, he begins and he ends with adoration. 
He begins and he ends with adoration. In other words, if, if I could put this a different way, uh, Nehemiah begins by telling God about God, right? He tells God about God. He, he just repeats what the scriptures say about the Lord. And we see that in verse 5. And he said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, you know, as, as Nehemiah exalts God, he, of course, is focusing upon his name, upon his character. And, and the prayer becomes an adoring of God's divine omnipotence, you know, of who God is and his might. Uh, he talks about the sovereignty of God, the might, uh, how God is mighty, how he's holy, how he's loving, faithful, he's merciful. So we see him focusing basically on two things. Kids, first of all, God's transcendence. Now that's a big word, transcendence, and you might think, what does that mean, Pastor Rick? Well, transcendence has to do with how high God is, okay? How high above us. And I don't mean like in distance, like he's taller than us or he's up in the sky. I'm just saying he is much mightier than us. You know, for us, we get sick, right, kids? You get sick sometimes. You know, maybe you fall down and you scrape your knee or you break your arm, right? You know, those kind of things happen, right? But with God, nothing like that happens because he is mighty and great. He is transcendent. But the other thing that it focuses on is God's eminence. And that is that God is near to us. You know, God's not so great, kids, that he says, I am great, so why do I want to mess with you puny little people? No, God's actually the opposite. He said, I am great, and I love you, and I want to be with you. Of course, by, by focusing upon God like this, what Nehemiah is doing, and how it helps him, and how it would help us too, is it puts everything in perspective. When we remember that God is God, problems seem to take on smaller dimensions. You ever notice that? Whenever you think about your problems, they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And worry sets in. And you begin to fill in the blanks as to what's going to happen. And it begins to cause anxiety in you. And, and you, you just for some people, it can shut them down. They can become paralyzed because of such worry. But as you lift your eyes to heaven and dependence upon the Lord and to focus upon who He is, and give him glory then do you ever notice how your problems begin to get smaller and you begin to go wow you know this seems big to me but in light of who God is it's not so big God could do these things and you begin to find the peace of God feeling your heart as you see who he is well not only do you see Nehemiah committed to prayer, but he also is very persistent in prayer. Uh, and this may not be evident right away, but if you look, at, there's, there's two dates. There's a date at the beginning of chapter 1, and there's a date at the beginning of chapter 2. And while that's, why that is important is that it shows us that Nehemiah prayed for at least three to five months here, okay, uh, before he did anything else. He spent three to five months praying about it. And we even read in verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that now, 
or excuse me, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So not only did he pray for an extended amount of time, but he was persistent in his prayers. He prayed day and night to the Lord. He recognized that prayer is action. Prayer is doing something. It may not necessarily be us doing something, but we are imploring the Lord to do something. We're praying to Him and asking Him to act on our behalf. Now there does become a point in time in which we must do something too as well, but still nonetheless prayer is action. It's sort of like the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, the words of that says, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer, right? That's the privilege that we have as God's people. And so Nehemiah continues to pray about these matters patiently, waiting on God's timing and his insights. You know, but oftentimes we get very impatient, right? If the Lord doesn't answer our prayers right away, we pray. And if the Lord doesn't answer our prayers, sometimes we even get upset. Lord, I've been praying for 10 minutes and you haven't answered my prayer yet. Now, hopefully it's not quite that bad, but, you know, we do. We get upset if we say, Lord, I've been praying for this for a week or for a month or for a year. And we think, where is God in all of this? But God's timetable is very different. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. We live according to our schedules, which is oftentimes a faulty schedule. But, you know, when we look at Scripture, it says with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. God's timing is perfect. You will never be early or late. All things fall out according to the execution of a perfect decree from the mind of a loving God who wants the very best for us and for all of His people, for that matter, as well. So persistent prayer uh, is, is so important. And brothers and sisters, persistent prayer is, is intimately related to maintaining a disciplined time of regular prayer. It's really hard to be persistent in prayer if your prayer is very sporadic. And we will only be committed to prayer like Nehemiah if prayer is more than just a conventional religious exercise. If we pray just because that's what Christians ought to do, it's going to be very hard to be persistent in prayer. But persistence in prayer comes when we are living in fellowship with God. When we are coming to our God and we are praying and we know that He is the God who hears our prayers and he not only hears them he loves us and he wants to answer those prayers and he will only answer those prayers in the way that is perfect for us and the way that will bring glory to his name those are one and the same by the way whatever glorifies him will be best for us and and he will do that and as we fellowship and we were reminded of those things then we want to come to him we're so thankful that we have some place to go and to lay our burdens down and to pray to Him. We know that God is a covenant-keeping God. But we also know that He is a God who commands His people. And unfortunately, we're a people who disobey, do we not? And we see in these verses that the, the heart of the problem is the heart of the people, uh, and specifically the exiles in Jerusalem that God enters into a covenant relationship with his people, and, and God just tells his people very simply, just obey my laws. And if they do, then you'll be covenant keepers, but if you disobey, you'll be covenant breakers. 
And in, in verse 6, it sort of highlights the fact that God's people have not obeyed. And that's when we come to our third point, that intercessory prayer causes us to look inward with penitence and, and repentance. As, as Nehemiah is exalting God, as he is praising God and seeing Him for who He is, he also becomes sorrowful and, and, and realizes his own sin. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your prayers open to, the, the, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servant, confessing the sins of Israel. He's praying for Israel, but he's also confessing their sins, which he says, we have sinned against you. And then he said, even I and my father's house have sinned. So he's confessing the sins that Israel has done, but also his own sins and those of his family. And he says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant. You see, Nehemiah, even though he's not in Jerusalem, he allies himself with the people in such a way that he includes himself in their sins and he confesses his own sins. Nehemiah very much comes before the Lord in the sense of humility. But such humility only comes, brothers and sisters, when we see God for who He is, then we will be able to see ourselves for who we are and see our own sin. You see, Nehemiah doesn't simply focus on the sins of other people. He also so focuses on his own sins. But how often do we fixate our prayers on the sins of others and we ignore our own sins? Right? I mean, we don't set out to confess their sins, but we sure talk to the Lord a lot about them. Lord, would you do something with my husband? He is driving me nuts. You know, he does this and this and this and this. Or Lord, you know, I love our church and I think it's great, but this one person, I don't know what it is. They're just, ah, oh, they're just so different than I am. Would you do something about them? And there's all these ways that we can confess other people's sins and shortcomings. And sometimes they're not sins. Maybe they're personality differences or whatever. But that's not Nehemiah's perspective. He says in verse 7, we have acted very corruptly. We, I have acted very corruptly. And, and he actually sort of focuses in on one particular sin. And that is that the people of Israel have been in possession of God's word. And yet they have disobeyed it. They have not obeyed what God has said. Now, I think some people probably blamed Artaxerxes for the walls not being built. You know, because of what I told you before. But if sin is the cause of the Jews' plight, turning from it back to God in repentance and faith is, is the remedy. And the real reason and the real problem for the wall being torn down is because of the sin of God's people. That takes us to our, our last point. Looking backward with gratitude and, and forward with confidence. Looking backward with gratitude and forward with confidence. In verses uh, 8 through 11. So those sin must be confessed. And that's and Nehemiah recognizes that. His own sin. He confesses that. He doesn't wallow in that sin. You know, he does confess it. But then he moves on. And, and he prays. And he really actually focuses not so much on the sin of Israel but really on the unchanging historical realities of what God has said in the past 
and what God has done in the past. First of all, what God has said in verses 8 and 9. Uh, he recalls the words of Moses and the, the danger that Moses warns the people about regarding apostasy. Uh, look at verse 8. He said, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Well, what did he say, kids? What did he say? He said, God says, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the peoples. Now, where is uh, Nehemiah praying this prayer from? Persia, right? So the people have been scattered. Nehemiah is living proof that God is faithful to his word and faithful to his warnings. Nehemiah sees the plight of God's people and the condition of the city of God and he knows exactly why God's people are in the condition that they're in. They disregarded the warnings of God, and so his word was fulfilled. And I think this is something that we as Christians need to take in mind. I think, how often do we focus upon the promises of God, and yet we ignore the warnings of God? But you look at the New Testament, and you see the numerous places where Paul says things like, examine your lives. I mean, and not just to people in the pew. He looks to the preachers. And he says, examine your life and your doctrine carefully. You know, there, there, there's a sense in which oftentimes we just want to look in the past. And we want to say, I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus Christ into my life and I'm good. And we never examine our lives after that. But there are warnings that God gives us against straying about giving in to the worldliness of this world, of doing all these things and these warnings that we need not to ignore these things. But as believers, we need to look to these things. Yes, God will keep His children faithful to the end, but that does not mean that there are not people who would profess faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they would wonder. We saw that in the book of Hebrews. And so we ought to be examining our own lives to make sure we're not those people. But look at verse 9. We see words of hope. It doesn't end with a warning and oh, all bad news. In verse 9, we see words of hope. And in the English, there are just two very small words. But if. But if. This just reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, right? But God. Uh, but if you return to me and keep my commandments um, uh, and do them. Now, the difference between keeping the commandments and doing them, the keeping the commandments is basically in the Hebrew that's saying, if, the, if you will esteem my words, if you'll hold them highly, if you will value them, and then you will do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. If you repent of your sins and you turn to me, says God, I will restore you. What great news the Lord gives. But it's not just what God says, it's what he does as well. Uh, and, and we need to remember that God demonstrates the reliability of his word by what he does as well. Look at verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. What did God do? God redeemed his people. 
And Nehemiah recalls that his contemporaries are the servants of God, your people, whom you have redeemed. And he even says, with a great strength and mighty hand, for all their undoubting failings, these Israelites are the redeemed community of God. Brothers and sisters, we're the same. Even with our shortcomings, even with our failings, we are the people of God. God, when he saves his people, acts decisively, doing exactly what he promised, and he redeems them. And God always takes the initiative in doing so. And even in our struggles, God is at work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Another passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You see, we, this is good news, brothers and sisters. We are not a faithful people. Are we? No. But God is a faithful God. Israel made it to the promised land not because they came to their senses and all of a sudden they decided we need to obey the Lord, but because God was faithful to bring them where he was directing them to go. And he says, by his great power and his strong hand. That's, that's the language that he used in the Exodus. How God delivered them out of bondage. And so we will make it to heaven because of God's faithfulness to preserve us. So what gives us confidence as we go before the Lord to pray to him in our prayers? That he will answer our prayers. What confidence do we have in the future? Well, it's not our ability to walk upright before God but rather it's his character. It's what he's done. It's what he has said that will give us that confidence. And this is how we should pray with such confidence. Our, our prayers should be full of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We should be telling God who he is as, as God and what he has done and, and that he is our only hope. Because he is the God who never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So if we read it in the pages of Scripture and we say that's how God worked then, then we can be confident that's how God still works today with His people. But we must not focus only on God's promises, but we must also heed His warnings as well. God is faithful to His covenant promises, but He's also faithful to His covenant curses as well. So what hope do we have as an unfaithful people to trust in the one who has become the curse for us on the cross? The one who's paid the penalty. That's why we can have confidence because of what Christ has done. But the trust that we have in Christ is not just a one-time trust that I trusted Christ when I prayed a prayer and I came to faith in Him years ago. But it is taking up our cross daily and dying to self and turning to Him for strength to obey Him in the midst of our weakness. It's asking forgiveness when we fail and we sin against God, desiring that we would be set free from this bondage of sin, that we would be covenant keepers. And you see, in verse 11, Nehemiah takes these things to heart for his own life. He said, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Now he's praying for himself. 
and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man? Well, later on we're going to find it's King Artaxerxes. Uh, Nehemiah is about to ask the king in chapter 2 if he could go help rebuild the wall. Uh, and then that's when he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. He wants us to feel the weight of, 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 of his circumstances. That Nehemiah's prayer moved from just a recollection to what God had done in the past to I have a difficult situation in front of me. I am the king's cupbearer and the king has said the wall needs to not be built. The work needs to stop. And yet, I am a man of God who loves Yahweh and I desire to see him glorified and the way that that would happen is that God's people would walk with him and that the walls would be rebuilt in the city. And so Nehemiah is most likely feeling the weight that he needs to go to the king now and say, let me go rebuild those walls. Can you see how that would be a dilemma? And that's where he's at. That's why he lets us know at the end, oh, and by the way, I was a cupbearer to the king, if you want to know what my situation was. So he was in quite a predicament. And so he prays, but understanding that now something needs to be done. And he doesn't want to go into the king's presence at, at an inopportune moment. So he's seeking guidance from the Lord. And so though it was tempting to, to maybe push ahead, he also was very cautious. And, and that's a struggle that we oftentimes have as believers. There's times when God has us wait, but there's also times when God has us move forward and do a work. And we see that throughout. We see that in Moses' life. We see that in Jesus' life. We see that in the Apostle Paul's life. It said, what, 14 years was it that Paul went to Achaia um, before he really went into the ministry? Moses, it was 40 years. Jesus, it was 30 years before he began his ministry. There was a lot of waiting before there was, was acting. And so here Nehemiah is uh, preparing himself for the ministry that God is calling him to do. And so he comes to the Lord in prayer, seeking his face. Now, as we come to the end of this, what do we take home? Do I just tell you that this prayer is a model prayer of intercession? So if you want to pray good, godly, intercessory prayers, then go home and pray like Nehemiah. No, that's not really what this leaves us with. The Bible actually speaks of one who prays who prays perfect intercessory prayers, one who is without sin, one who is perfect and has no need to ask for forgiveness because he is God himself, one who sits at the right hand of God praying continually for you and me. Did you know that, brothers and sisters? I know you know that, but do you know that? As you walk through the circumstances of your life, as you have these things that you're wrestling with, do you go to the Lord in prayer, imploring of Him, Jesus, I'm struggling with this, help me. Do you know you have an advocate that is there? Jesus never stops praying for you. You know, Nehemiah 1 may be the longest intercessory prayer in the Old Testament, but John 17, enter, uh, it triumphs Nehemiah 1 any day. 
And if you don't know what John 17 is, it is Christ's priestly prayer where he's praying for his disciples. He's praying for the church. He actually, you and I are included in that. He prays for the church in the future even. And, and, and Jesus prays not only for the church in John 17, but then he carries that prayer into heaven and is still praying that same prayer for you and I today. So even as you sit here, Jesus is in heaven enabling your prayers. He's hearing your prayers. He's even lifting up things to the Father that you and I don't even know how to pray for to, to aid us. And then in John 10, it reminds us that Jesus never lets his people go. So this morning as we come to this prayer in Nehemiah, my question is for you is this. Will you rest in him? Will you rest in him? Whatever it is that you're wrestling with, whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, can you lay that at the feet of Jesus knowing that he is offering perfect intercessory prayer for you to the Father? And he will do it because he loves you. I, for trials, he will do it. For temptations, for, for decisions that you have to make, maybe, maybe for your witness. In all these things, he will do. For everything necessary for life and for godliness, Jesus is interceding for you. Will you trust him? Let's bow our heads and meditate upon this word this morning. Father, our lives are, are defined by change, turmoil, uh, constant things coming into our lives. Father, there's so much that we have to process with, so much that we are tempted by, so many trials, so, so many decisions and things that, that we have to make. We very easily can feel overwhelmed, but it's so good to be reminded this morning that there is one who never changes, and yet that is the one who intercedes and prays for us. Lord, help us. Lord, help us this morning to lay our burdens at the foot of Christ, to pray to him, knowing that he is the one who hears our prayers. Lord, there are so many things that are before us. As a church, we have this whole building situation before us, and there are more questions right now, Lord, than we have answers. But Lord, even if we had all the answers to our questions, I don't still know that we would know exactly the right decision and the path to take. But we lay that before you. And we trust you that you will lead and direct us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling this morning, especially those that may be just overwhelmed by life and the things that are going on. Oh, Lord, let them know that they are not alone and that you love them and you are praying for them. We thank you, Lord, and pray all these things in your name. Amen.